Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is an absolute legend in climbing, Peter Croft. After talking to Will Stanhope, Will offered to connect me with Peter, and a couple days later, I found myself sitting in Peter's living room. So thank you very much to Will. I totally appreciate it. Peter Croft. Peter has been pushing standards in on-siding, enchainments, and link-ups, and in free soloing for more than 30 years. Peter cut his teeth in Squamish, British Columbia, and made many impressive first ascents in the area in the 80s, most notably his first free ascent of University Wall in 1982, along with Hamish Fraser and Greg Fowerker, and later the first free ascent of The Shadow in 1988, which he did on-site a feat which would go unrepeated for 30 years despite being attempted by many top climbers. We talked about the shadow and how his ascent became a climbing game. We talked about some of the lessons he's learned from spending time alone and the importance of self-honesty, his experiments with burning fat for fuel and how he trains for big solos and link-ups, some of his most memorable climbs in the Leavenworth area in Washington, why he's worn long johns on some climbs but never got into wearing bright colored lycra, and what Peter calls the magic of inspiration and how inspiration plays into his own climbing. At one point, I referenced an amazing story that Peter told on the Enormocast. If you haven't heard it, I would highly recommend listening to it after this episode, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes with a timestamp so you guys can find that story as easily as possible. We cover some of it again here, but it's definitely worth checking out to hear the full story. I'd quickly like to state for the record that this episode was recorded back in February, and that this and the next several episodes were recorded prior to the coronavirus being a thing. I hope that each of you are healthy and well and that your friends and family are safe and close by. Take care of one another out there and keep each other safe. And if you know someone who's stuck inside with nothing to do, share the podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please enjoy this conversation with Peter Croft. Are you a morning person? Oh, yeah. I'd been oh, up yeah. for, I don't know, a couple hours at that <laughs> really? point. Really? So this it's... fantasy in my head, I see that your message from 540 and you're like, yeah, well, you know, I could meet at 2, two yeah. or 3 p.m. And I just yeah. imagine that you just ran out to the gorge and just soloed a bunch of roots. And then I did yesterday. You did but, yesterday. <laughs> but not today. Yeah. Rest day today? Yeah. Going to go climbing probably tomorrow. Yeah. Nice. Do you take more rest days these days? Yeah, I do. And uh, I mean, when I, when I was uh, still based in Canada... You know, I grew up in Western Canada, and it rains most of the time. Yeah. And if you start taking rest days when the weather's good, you're mm. going to climb a very small part of the, the whole year. Yeah. And so I used to climb every day. I mean, and then so when I started being more in California, I would still climb every day. I'd go you know, <laughs> sometimes 30, 40 days in a row. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one thing I learned from my friend John Backer, mm-hmm. he introduced me to rest days. And I couldn't believe how much stronger I got once I took rest days. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard of rest days, but I kind of thought that, I don't know, for some weird reason, maybe I was an exception to the rule or uh-huh. something. But but yeah, so I don't climb so many days in a row, but I, I climb a lot harder now than I did when I was in my 20s. So Oh, that's awesome. 
That's so exciting for me to hear. (laughs) (laughs) There's hope. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So I just re-listened to an interview that you did on the Normal Cast, and it's a great Uh conversation. I'll link to it in the show notes for folks. But it's funny that you brought that up because I I just listened to you talk about linking up with Backer. I think it was to do two routes back-to-back on LCAP in a day? No, it it was to do the nose of LCAP and then do half dome in a day. Got you. Yeah. And so you were in peak form, you'd been climbing every day and backer was like, no, you need to lay in your tent and do nothing for two days and eat as much as you can and sleep as much as you can. Yeah. It was brutal advice. (laughs) I, I, I actually thought that in two days I would get out of shape. Yeah. That's how neurotic I was. Um, and I said, okay, I'll rest, but I'll just do some easy soloing and just go for a run. Uh And he goes, no, you got to lay in your tent and eat as much as you can. And I was really low on funds. And so the only type of food I could really realistically pile up in my tent was saltine crackers. So one (laughs) wall of my tent was just solid crackers. And I would literally just eat crackers until I passed out and wake up and eat more crackers. And as dumb as it sounds now, boy, at the end of those two rest days, I was just amped beyond belief. It sounds like it worked. Oh, it felt... You know, it's you'd kind of think of any big endurance event, but at the end, you must have felt like really tired. Uh huh. And I, it, climbing felt like food. I felt stronger just throughout the day. And the top of Half Dome at the end of the day, I just felt like I wish the sun was, you know, I, oh, if we had more man. daylight, basically. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. And, and John felt the same way. You know, huh. it was just, we were both, it was just, you know, a kind of a magic day for sure. Did you talk about doing something else? <laughs> uh, to do anything else, it would have to be big. And mm. we would need a certain number of hours. And just the timing of it, I think we topped out on Half Dome at 5.30, which meant by the time we got back down to the valley floor, we just simply didn't have enough time. Got it. In retrospect, I mean, if we had had, we could have just grabbed some headlamps and gone for something else, I guess. But it was, I guess of all the link-ups I've done, that's maybe the most classic. Mm. Um, and just the idea of it, in some ways, sometimes adding something takes away, mm-hmm. you know, you've just done this classic thing and then to do some other cliff. I don't know. We were just so high yeah. from doing this thing that nobody else had really given it an effort. We hadn't given it. It was just, it seemed like this ultimate and it, it was just like the most fun ultimate. It didn't seem like this tortuous uh-huh. big effort. It was more like, Oh man, this is just like, I can't believe how much fun it was. That's so cool. So was that a paradigm shift for you? Did you take more rest days from that point forward? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 it kind of clued me in huh. because not only did I feel like really strong, I felt like I could, just couldn't get tired. That's amazing. So yeah, it's a, climbing's a process in mm-hmm. all kinds of ways. And one of the ways is, you know, what you learn along the way. And sometimes it might be advice from John, who was arguably the best climber in the world at that time, hmm. certainly way better than me you know, you learn from that, but other things, you know, like an injury where you were really stupid of maybe climbing too many days in a row and hmm. you realized I should have taken rest days. And did you, you know, run into been, that as well? Yeah. yeah. I, I've been really lucky though. I've had very few hmm. real injuries, but, but, you know, you learn from all of that kind of stuff and, mm-hmm. you, and, uh, you know, instead of your experience, just being a list of things that you've done, it's, it should be things that have taught you stuff hmm. and you've become hopefully better. Yeah, you know, maybe even maybe a nicer guy because of yeah. whatever. But but you do, you know, it affects you not just for bragging rights. Hmm. 
so I was just in the black sheep and I was kind of taking some notes, collecting notes for this and, and kind of doing prep. I was sitting next to my friend, Brittany Gorris. I mentioned to her that I was going to be interviewing you and her face kind of lit up and she spun her water bottle towards me and she had a sticker on her water bottle that says, Peter Croft is my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Are you aware that that sticker exists? You know what? Uh, somebody, boy, a year or something ago, they were in some climbing area and they took a picture of somebody's bumper, uh, <laughs> a bumper sticker or whatever. And so I, I was aware of it. I, to- I had forgotten about it by now, but that is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so it was made without your knowledge, without your consent? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did not pay anybody to do that. That is, yeah. that is, that is super funny. I kind of figured. So it's, it's really interesting to me, though. You're a fascinating guy because there's this, I think, at least from my perspective and probably most climbers, there's this kind of lore around you <laughs> where you did so much soloing. You did so many things you just kind of would pass through and do something amazing. And there was, you left like this whisper of Peter Croft behind you. Cause it seems like you were just so amped up to go run around and, and climb that mm. you were just already on to the next thing. But it's amazing to meet you. You're also so amicable and friendly and well-spoken. And it's interesting to me that there's kind of this mystery around you where it seems like you are pretty content sticking to yourself, but then you're also such an expressive uh, well-spoken storyteller. So I, I don't know. That's interesting to me. Does has that duality kind of always been there? And yeah, yeah. You know, some people are really uh, gregarious, and they just they like to tell everybody about stuff that they've done. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, as far as the soloing goes, time alone it forces you to be introspective and hopefully to be super honest with yourself. Hmm. And. As, as far as being well-spoken, I wouldn't go so far as that. But I would say that um, when you're forced to be honest about yourself, that time alone, it teaches you stuff. Whereas w- when you're constantly in social circles, communicating with other people, mm-hmm. and a huge part of communicating oftentimes, well, now it's called sharing, but basically bragging to other people <laughs> um, about stuff that you've done. And, and in other words, trying to be seen a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think time alone, it's not like it makes it so that you, you don't do that kind of thing, but it, it forces a certain type of honesty mm. on yourself so that you, you know that part of you that is there when nobody else is around, nobody there to impress. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's one of the, the interesting things about, and it doesn't have to be solo climbing, it could be solo sailing or solo mm. hiking or things like that, but um, it gives you an insight. And so... Um, like I say, I, I, I don't know about uh, being well-spoken, but it, it does, it should force an honesty on you. Hmm. Well, it's, it seems like, I don't know, maybe the way I'm thinking about it is that you're so excited about the climbing that you just go do the climbing, but then you're so excited about the climbing that you also love to talk about it. I, I'm like hearing the enthusiasm, just meeting you and, and hearing that first story about climbing with John. It just kind of, it's almost like you can't keep it in. Yeah, but the doing is so much more important Mm. than the talking about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the best part about talking about it is if you can inspire other people, I've had all kinds of people inspire me, or it's just simply a mountain. Mm -hmm. The the inspiration factor is, I think it's what just makes climbing exciting and even explosive at times Mm -hmm. is, is that inspiration part of it. So the doing is the most important thing. So mm-hmm. um, some few years back, I read about this guy. He had done a solo first ascent in Patagonia of a big wall, big aid wall. And he was out there 40 days or something like that. Mm-hmm. Finally, he comes out of the wilderness and he goes online and he, I, somebody 
turned me on to this thing that he wrote. And basically he was posting, he said he hadn't had a hot meal yet. He hadn't had a shower. He had to let everybody know what he had done. And huh. boy, talking about it would have been so far down the list. It would have been weeks before I wrote. <laughs> or, I mean, if I met somebody, maybe I would have a word, but, but you know, it's different different for different people but the, right. the doing is so much more important and so yeah like you're mentioning before about yeah i would just like travel through some of these places well if i'm by myself and i don't know anybody i'm not going to go i mean I, i'm there for the climbing mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i would just do my thing and and uh Oftentimes, it would either get into the magazines I hadn't told anybody. Right. <laughs> or people would tell me these stories about stuff that I'd done. I hadn't told anybody. Huh. And I was either doing big solo link-ups in Yosemite Valley or, I mean, sometimes in Washington, up in, in the Leavenworth area. Yeah. And I'm like, how the hell, how do they know? I, I've, I, it was just kind of like a mystery. Huh. I remember this one girlfriend of mine in Yosemite, before she met me, she said, that her and this other guy, they went to do this big climb and they found a Canadian nickel. And uh-huh. the guy goes, I know where this Canadian nickel came from. <laughs> it it, it, it just, had to be Peter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I do love the camaraderie of, of climbing and I, mm-hmm. I love uh, meeting up with other climbers. And, you know, and if you can inspire someone, I used to feel really awkward about that, just the whole... There's all these other people they should be gaining their inspiration from. Other, oh, as far as people, other than myself, people just, coming up to you. I basically felt I was, you know, I'm unworthy type thing. Okay. But, you know, I've just come to realize if it does inspire them, just get over yourself. And just, <laughs> you know, if you got some, you know, young teenager who's just so jacked up and wants to talk to you, forget about whether you're worthy or not. Obviously for them, it could psych them up. Hmm. You know, it could even maybe make a difference in a small way. That's cool. You seem like an introvert. Do you get a lot of energy from going off and being by yourself? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you seem very friendly and outgoing, but also maybe like you need your alone yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, for instance, if I'm going to go have dinner with some friends, I'd way rather just go have dinner with a couple of friends than uh-huh. ten friends. Yeah, ten friends means that the conversation is just like basic. Uh, how, well, what do you think about the weather? Uh-huh. Uh, or what do you think about that baseball team? Or something? You know, the smaller the group, the more intimate it becomes. Yeah. The more you can really connect with people. Uh-huh. It's very difficult to connect with a large group. I mean, sometimes if you're given a talk and the energy's right, you know, sometimes you do kind of pick up on that. But realistically, it's hard to be intimate to 500 people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So, Peter, you have an amazing resume full of way more sense than we can really cover and get into. One that really stands out in my mind is the on-site first free ascent you did of The Shadow. Mm -hmm. And for listeners, The Shadow is a 13A stemming corner in Squamish on the Chief. And you did the first ascent in, was it in 88, 1988? I I think so. Okay. I think that's right. And I I don't know if it had been tried much, but... um, No, nobody. No one had really tried it. And I never thought of it. Huh. Okay. Well, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, it was incredible ascent. It was one of the hardest trad pitches in Canada at the time. And I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I'd love to dig into it. But for the next 30 years, it kind of became this game. It's like, who can repeat Peter Croft's onsite, The Shadow? <laughs> and a lot of climbers tried. You know, names that people would recognize. Sonny Trotter, Alex Honnold, Tommy Caldwell, Brett Harrington. I just did an interview with Will Stanhope. I've got a quote from him that he wrote in an article. He wrote, every climber has an ascent that stands out to them, a gold standard climb that you strive to emulate. For me, it's Peter's onsite of the shadow, the sort of climb that makes you want to try your absolute best as opposed to weasel out the easy way. 
I fell short in climbing it first try, but the inspiration, like the perfect gray corner above Highway 99, remains. So I, I'm really fascinated by that. Are you aware that this became kind of a climbing game? I didn't. No. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> and it was finally it was finally done. I, um, Emily Perlin, mm-hmm. she's a Quebec-based climber. She uh-huh. onsighted it, I think, in August of 2018, and then Nina Caprez did it uh-huh. almost exactly a year later. Uh-huh. I mean, that's amazing to me. <laughs> 30 years. It surprised before. me it took that long. Huh. I, mean, I mean, the way standards are, yeah, yeah. are today. Yeah. You know, we were talking before about what inspiration can do for you. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly one of those things. I hadn't really, I hadn't given any thought as far as like going and doing it. Uh-huh. And then I was sitting in, I think it was the Frosty Cone in Squamish, having an ice cream. And the sun was just coming around the chief. Uh-huh. And then the sun just hit the front face of the chief and this perfect shadow line just went up the whole hmm. the whole chief and you know i'd done university wall which roughly follows that but the perfect shadow line all the way to the top I, and i've just i remember just kind of putting the ice cream cone down just like that's what i want to do <laughs> and it was it wasn't a long thought out process and then i don't know a day or two later went up and did it and oh yeah, my gosh and it, and it was awesome but yeah it, it really surprised me it took so long to repeat and I, uh i mean because like i went back and repeated it Okay. A few months later, a year later, or something like that. And I remember it just being, it felt way easier, not because I knew a sequence, because there isn't really a sequence. It's just a bunch of weird stemming. Mm-hmm. But when I first did it, my feet kept on slipping off because the rock hadn't been cleaned. It was, you know, so there'd be like little grit and granite crystals popping off and my feet would cut loose and, yeah. and I'd have to kind of swing them back in and paste them back on. And, <sighs> and so when I went back, whatever it was, a year later and, and did it, I did it a couple of times. I was just like, wow, these smears were great. They're just, they're just totally bomber now. So, wow. Um, I don't, I don't want to make a big deal, but but yeah. it, it surprised me. It, it did take so long, huh. you know, because it isn't, you know, some obscure pitch in the middle of nowhere that has a really long approach. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, and it's been know, tried by a lot of people. You can see it from the frosty cone and smash. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great video uh, from Sonny Trotter of Jesse Huey climbing the shadow, uh-huh. and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. It's, it's great, and it kind of showcases what the root's all about. I think in that description of that video, I came across a quote from Jesse, and he was saying that he met you, I think, on a backcountry trip in the Sierra, and that he yeah. mentioned that, and your eyes really lit up when he mentioned the shadow and the university wall. So yeah. are, are those... Are those both, or are one of those still especially y- significant? Y- yeah, yeah, because it was... Um Right after I did the shadow, that was the last big thing I did up there. Hmm. And it was certainly if I had failed, moving down to the States would have been like, I got to get back. <laughs> it, it, it was kind of like, it was a great way to sort of make the transition and move to California because huh. it was like, th- there's plenty of cool things left to do in Squamish. And there's amazing things that were done after I left. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was the best looking line. Hmm. It doesn't mean it is the best looking line. It's simply, for me, it was the coolest thing. And that's, again, back to the inspiration thing. It's not just when something inspires you, but if every once in a blue moon, you go, not only is this really cool, but this is the coolest thing I can imagine doing. In other words, there's no place in the world I would rather be than right here, right now. Hmm. And that's when I think you can lift yourself to just something that just blows yourself away, regardless Hmm. of what other people think, but for yourself. Hmm. I'm curious. So you you said you've been here down in Bishop for what, 20 years? A bit longer in this house, 20 yeah. years. Okay. Maybe 23, 24 years in this area. Okay. Yeah. Were there any other things in the 
in the Northwest or in the Squamish area that are that feel like unfinished business that you're still thinking about, like mm, ah, or, or that you ever not, went back up there? For? Not really. I mean, realistically, I mean, a lot of the stuff I'd really like to do is just stuff that other people have done the first ascent of. Yeah. Just go up and you know whether it's um, up in Squamish or the Index Walls or mm. stuff around Leavenworth, mm-hmm. um, even Smith Rocks. I mean, there's yeah. That's the great thing. Not only is, you know, the climbing world really big, it's gotten so much bigger mm-hmm. that there's so much more to go at all over the place. There's so many new crags, let alone roots. I mean, there's, there's just so much more stuff all over the place to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Were you ever driven much by the first ascent thing or is it just you want to go climb uh, stuff? When I first started getting into first ascents up, yeah. in, up in Squamish. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I did lots of terrible new routes, just <laughs> okay. worthless <laughs> pieces of junk that, um, and I, actually you're talking about Will. I think the first time I ever was in contact with him at all, he reached out to me and he was going to write an article for Alpinist or something about finding a new route up in Squamish. And then he started cleaning it and then he found an old fixed pin. And I think it turned out that it was one of my old Uh routes that are totally grown over. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I I got way into it. But um, after a certain number of years, I just realized it's a lot of work. Mm. So I would do when the climb looks so good. I would want to do it whether it had a hundred ascents and no ascent, no ascents, because hmm. um, spending a, a ton of time, particularly in, in a place like Squamish, where it's a lot of effort, a lot of scrubbing and groveling hmm. about, mm-hmm. um, it's less climbing time. Yeah, I'm too much of a, a fun hog to, um, <laughs> to put too much work into it. Got you. I recently read Hang Dog Days, Jeff Smoot's book. I, yeah, I don't know that book. Okay, okay, it came out just recently, and it features Todd Skinner and um, Alan Watts pretty heavily, but you're in there too. It's hmm. funny that you hadn't heard of it. Hmm. But he was talking about being in the Leavenworth area back in the 80s, and there was only a smattering of 512s in Washington. And he wrote that as of 83, you had established most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Tell me about that. Tell me about your Washington and Leavenworth. Yeah, uh, well, I, you know, for the first, I don't know, handful of years that I was climbing, I was just climbing up in Squamish, mm-hmm. and it rains most of the time. And then I remember one time we were, a few of us were sleeping underneath somebody's station wagon because mm-hmm. the tents, it was raining too hard for the tents. So we're underneath the station wagon in a gravel parking lot. <laughs> and then one of the guys under the, there, he goes, I've had it. Let's go to Leavenworth. And I'm like, it's raining everywhere. There's, there's no point in going. And he goes, no, no, Leavenworth, it'll be dry. And so we drove, drove down. There's like about a five hour drive and it's pouring rain the whole way. And then we we're about 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. You're going down this valley and it's just this V-shaped valley and way off in the distance, you could just see this tiny little bit of blue, like way over there. <laughs> uh-huh. went there and, and it was sunny and dry the whole time. But after that first time, just whenever the weather was truly bad, when the forecast mm. the next week was pouring rain, a lot of times we would, we would go there. It was the place to go when Squamish had gone to hell. We would uh-huh. go, to, go to Leavenworth for a bit of heaven. Yeah. It wasn't just the, the good weather. It was completely different environment. Mm-hmm. It's got that, you know, the pine forest and the smell of the pines and, and then just I mean, amazingly good climbing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I started going there regularly. First bunch of years, you know, just repeating routes down there. Cool. And then eventually, um, I think the, the, I guess when I first started doing new routes in there, it was probably when I ran into this guy Jim Yoder, who was a, a local. Okay. And him and I started doing some new routing down there. Okay. I grew up right next to there. I grew up in Wenatchee. So oh, okay. About 30 yeah. minutes away. Yeah. Yeah. So Leavenworth is has a really special place yeah. in my heart and still feels like home. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the fall. Uh-huh. When we went down there, you know, the, uh, what are those uh, needle-bearing trees that go golden in the fall? The larches? That, yeah, the larches. Yeah. Those things going off and being up on Castle Rock. Yeah. And uh, 
down in the river underneath Castle Rock, the sockeye salmon are running and mm. they're like bright red and green. And then the apple farmers would come up from the orchards and sell apples in the parking lot underneath oh, nice. the cliff. And it was just the whole, you know, Oktoberfest. Mm. Um, yeah. Super fun. Yeah. yeah. I got super good memories and not just in that way, but there was a certain point in Squamish where it started to get really competitive hmm. and, you know, there was like kind of cliques of, you know, different groups who are kind of funky with each other. And it just, the competitive thing started to just really bug me. Hmm. And so finally I just like, I've had it. It's just, this is just turning into another sport. It's not huh. so much fun anymore. Yeah. So when it was at its worst, I remember going down to Leavenworth and just hung out down there by myself and just went soloing. And it just kind of took me back to the beginning of when I started climbing Yeah. and how much fun it was and just climbing, you know, until it got too hot because I was there, there in the summer and then just jumping in the river and going swimming and you know, at the most weirdly competitive that Squamish climbing got, at least as far as I was concerned, Leavenworth is, was the cure. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's great to hear. So Jeff, in his book, he tells a story about being out at Castle Rock and running into you. And I think he said you soloed up a 600-foot route, down-climbed it, and that you did it about 10 times. And you'd climbed about 12,000 feet of soloing before lunch up to five. Uh, I, I, I think 12,000 feet would be a, a pretty big exaggeration. <laughs> okay. But I did, I would just go, yeah, go solo in there yeah. a lot. I was just talking to Will Stanhope and we were talking about soloing and especially uh, we got into an interesting conversation about down climbing mm -hmm. and he called down climbing the lost art. Mm -hmm. I was really curious about that. I know you've done a lot of that as yep. well. And of course it, it opens up an escape if you're soloing to be able to back off of anything. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really curious. Do you think all that down climbing makes you a better climber? Way better. At a certain point, it changed how I thought about crack climbing. Really? And, you know, maybe the best example is, so what I would do up in Squamish, I had a circuit of these different routes I would go to. So there was like a 511 finger crack, a 511 overhang face climb, 511 thin hand crack. And uh, they weren't just kind of like Indian Creek splitters, the cracks. They were more kind of like these, you know, open and close, kind of sequential type mm -hmm. things. So climbing up, I would maybe climb them one way, but climbing down on some of the steep parts, it's hard to see down underneath an overhang or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I need to figure out, okay, what's, what's the best way to do this? And it isn't, if you're climbing down, a, say, a 15-foot section, the less moves you can do it in, in other words, if you can use only the best jams, you can avoid the lousy jams mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, basically... By making the most out of those, the bomber finger lock or bomber hand jam, make a huge reach. Hmm. So what it did for my crack climbing in the future was I would be climbing with friends who were about the same fitness as me. And we would be on some route and I would see them on a crux section where it gets really hard. And they would do maybe three moves and I would do one. Huh. And my take on it was like, I feel like I'm kind of cheating here. Huh. But I got way better at doing that because... So when you're going up, you're right in front of your face, you see your footholds. Mm -hmm. But when you're going down, you may have forgotten about stuff, but when you can do a big move to get back underneath an overhang, uh -huh. um, basically you can see what's going on better. If you're doing a whole bunch of mincy moves, mm. I don't know if I'm explaining this that makes properly, sense, I think. but, uh, so I mean, one thing people who don't crack climb that much, they don't realize how important it is to milk a jam. And that means okay. to just get it extra, extra good. Uh -huh. And with a handhold, you play around with it a little bit, but with you the jams, it, 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 it's a lot more to it. And so to be able to get really good at milking, and it, sometimes it's not even like a great jam, but to make the best out of it, the very best out of it, uh -huh. it requires extra technique and extra 
nuance, e- nuance, e- extra understanding of how jams work to get the very best out of it so that you can trust it to make a massive reach to get mm. past an even harder move. That's so interesting. So you really felt that oh, shift it, it, in your it, I became a way better crack climber. Wow. After doing a bunch of that. Just pulling good jams yep. all the way down to yep. your waist and just yep. reaching past the yep. battles. And then in that circuit that I would do in Squamish, I think I had like maybe five pitches that I would do. And after I've been doing that for a while, it'd be like 10 laps up and down on each one, never pulling over onto the top and never actually stepping down onto the ground. Oh, wow. Just because it was, you know, what my big dreams were, were really to go to Yosemite and do big roots. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've been the perfect training, but it, it was for me. I yeah. Guess. I'd love to get into that actually, because I'm always fascinated by that approach. It seems to work really well for some people, but it's amazing to me how much variation there is among really good climbers. Mm-hmm. Did you ever really project anything or was it always mileage, yeah. always more climbing? I mean, I, I have down here because okay. I, you know, in, during wintertime, the main climbing area is a sport climbing area, but very little. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it, a lot of it comes down to, you know, what inspires you. Mm-hmm. And for some people... And also maybe what your attention span is. <laughs> I don't have a huge attention span. And so, you know, putting in a huge effort for the on-site, it seems super worthwhile. And uh, to, to work on something for a long period of time, I, it needs to be a really cool looking line. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically, going for the one huge effort that this is your one chance to, you know, do your very best. So yeah, n- not very much projecting. And, and mm-hmm. also I just feel bad for my belayer to make them just sit there and belay me. I, I love climbing by myself, mm-hmm. but if I'm climbing with somebody else, I feed off their energy. I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, how a lot of us are. We just, we feed off uh, the, our friends, you know, being super psyched and having their, their own adventure. And so when it's all about me or when it's all just about one person, it's, you don't get that kind of energy as, like mm-hmm. I say, as far as feeding off of, you know, what's going on with the other person. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it typically balances out, you know, you end up giving the, the belay in return, but I imagine you're yeah. not the kind of guy that's whose favorite thing is to give a two hour belay either. No, no, no <laughs> I, 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 I'm happy to belay uh-huh. my friends for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, Cause at, at times, I mean, sometimes when I have just gone for an onsite at some big endurance pitch, I might be up there for mm. a long time before I finally do it or fall off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the projecting thing, it's, um, I guess, one of the things that led me into climbing was just, you know, the spontaneity of it. Mm-hmm. Having something where it's it's more of a job doesn't seem so much of a good deal. The projecting thing. Yeah. Maybe okay. a bit more like going to a job. I remember being down in Australia at Monterapolis and I was just like mostly soloing and I'd just be hitting all these different crags. And there was this one British girl, I think she was, and she was there. And for her six week trip, the whole time she she had a project on this one route mm-hmm. and she never got it in the end but i remember towards the end of that trip would see her every day you know going with her pack and it might as well have just been a briefcase clocking in because she didn't look excited or yeah. thrilled or yeah she just looked like she was going to a job she hated <laughs> <laughs> um Huh. Yeah. So diff- different for different folks. So you'd end up, I mean, you've onsighted 513. W- what was the progression to get to that point? Was it just doing tons of onsites, tons of routes? Yeah. I mean, the first 513s, first, I don't know, three or four that I did, I got first try. Huh. And That's I remember amazing. just meeting up with this guy in Yosemite. I had just onsighted this thing and he was projecting on it. And he was asking me for beta and I go, it's just a finger crack. I, I you know, uh-huh. And he goes, yeah, but you know, well, how, how did you train for it? And I'm like, well, I, I mean, I was just down in uh, Australia and mostly just soloing, you know, five tens and five elevens, not really, wow. hardly ever climbing a five twelve, just doing tons, tons of mileage. And 
And I said, you know, really what I was training for was to get back to Yosemite and see how many of these long, you know, 5.9 or 5.10 routes I could do in a day. Yeah. And he goes, oh, anybody can climb that kind of thing all day long. And I'm like, I can't. Huh. I mean, literally, I mean, if you're climbing by yourself, 20 hours is a long time to just continually climb. But, oh, um, my gosh, yeah. But, yeah, so for me, it was just kind of like, it just sort of really surprised me. That stuff that I was doing in Squamish as well, just those up and down things, I just felt like, you know, the first few 513s I did, you know, they're endurance type routes. And so mm-hmm. there's no single move that's really hard. Mm. A lot of it's, you know, managing the pump. And it just, at that time, couldn't really seem to get that pumped. <laughs> that's cool. That must be an amazing feeling. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, yeah, it totally surprised me uh-huh. you know, that um, could do some of those routes. Did you, I guess, have you ever, or do you ever now do any sort of supplemental training of any kind or is it all just, you know, climbing? I just started like in the last year or so. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, there's like this Irish guy who lives in town and he's, uh, showed me some stuff with a fingerboard. So yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it's actually, you know, that, I mean, at the very beginning climbing was one of the things that was so cool is it was so diverse mm. and it's way more diverse now. Hmm. Even things like training. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, if I've got the choice, I'll go climb on rock rather than train. But yesterday I went soloing and then came home and then played around the fingerboard and huh. watched some TV. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Do you find it helping? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Are you doing that in preparation for specific routes or objectives? No, I mean, just... you know, I've got, it seems like I've always got projects going on. <clears throat> okay. So I've got a hard project down in the gorge oh, cool. that I'm working on and then... I've got a project with uh, a couple of buddies up at the Incredible Hulk, which is a kind of an alpine wall up mm. north of Yosemite. Yeah, there's a, a beautiful segment in one of the real rocks of you and Lisa Rand's oh, yeah. climbing venturi uh, effect, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. I've, yeah. I've seen that a bunch of times. Yeah. It's a beautiful wall. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful cliff. Cool, so you're one still the putting up, in the country. Yeah. You're still working on new routes on that. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Keep, oh, on, but... keep on thinking that there's no really cool things left to do, but found another one. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Cool. I'm curious with the fingerboarding, do you do anything in particular to target crack climbing or is it just, nope. okay. no, no, I mean, you know, they say work on your weaknesses uh-huh. and, um, you know, I'm sure I could make my crack climbing better, but my main weakness through all of my climbing has always been weak fingers. Hmm. You know, my endurance is, is usually carried me through things of that nature, mm-hmm. but, um, as far as pure power goes, yeah, I've always just, uh, it's not been a talent of mine. That's for huh. sure. <laughs> So you would end up being the first person to solo both Astroman and Rosterman a day, 1987, yeah. I think you did yeah, that. Yeah, well, so a few years earlier than that, I had soloed the Rostrum. Okay. And then I came back from Australia trip and, and soloed Astroman. And I think the first time I did it, I went, soloed a bunch of stuff down at the Cookie and then went, and it was a really hot day. Okay. And so then went back up Valley and then hung out underneath Astroman by the river until it went into shade and then went up and did that. Okay. And I was, I really, that first time I really wanted to go do the Rostrum, but it was just, it was a kind of brutally hot day. Too hot. And then maybe, I don't know, a week later, then I did both of them. And then sometime later did the same sort of thing again. Yeah. Was there yeah. specific preparation that you're doing for, for that sort of thing? Is no, similar just, to what we've been just, talking about? Just, just a bunch of solos? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in other words, tons of mileage. Okay. I just, I guess one way to put it is soloing Astroman and the Rostrum. That wasn't a big day. Huh. It was just two longer routes, but yeah. I would go to places like Arch Rock and uh, the Cookie and stuff like that and do, you know, two or three times that amount of pitches of the same kind of grade. Yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, I think that's, really the way that you want to do that when you're soloing. And, uh, you know, I talked to Alex 
and you know, Alex doesn't train until he's fit enough to do something. Mm-hmm. He trains until he's like two or three times as fit as he needs to be. <laughs> right. And, and that's the way to do it. So that you just feel like you got tons in reserve. Mm. Like you, at the top of something like that, to me, I remember thinking very clearly, if I'm tired after this, I failed. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying that. I was just listening to that interview with you on the Enormal Cast. Yeah, and again, that was to it and, super clear. And, and yeah. Alex, when you know, after he did all cap, that's what he said. You know, if you're just pumped at like, all, tired at I'm all. Just, he's just jacked. I mean, yeah. you know, that's one thing. It, it does elevate you, but at the same time, you need to put in the preparation and hmm. make sure that fitness shouldn't be a factor. Mm-hmm. So people are probably familiar with with that because that it seems like that was mm-hmm. really one of the first big things that got in all the magazines and everyone was talking about. And I think a lot of people have likely seen that segment of you on the Hulk and kind of know that right. you're in the Sierra now and doing a lot mm-hmm. of stuff um, up there. Are there any other really significant ascents or, or highlights that you think people don't know about? That stand um, well, you're talking about Leavenworth and... Uh-huh. Um, I mean, before I ever sold the rostrum, I remember going down there and soloing uh, ROTC crack up on Midnight Rock. And I don't oh, know yeah. if you've been up there. And I remember that was the first, I'd sold lots of things of around that grade. What does that go at? Uh, it's 11C. Okay. Um, but you do like a, you start in this ledge, it's re, so it's really exposed before you even start. And then you do a kind of an overhang 510 pitch, and then you do this upper pitch. And I remember that was the first time I really felt like I was kind of out in space a bit mm. rather than just a one pitch finger crack. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was one thing where I really felt like, okay, this was the next step and this is, you know, pointing me in the right direction. But, um, more than that, I was starting to get really interested and in, it would have been 84, 85, something like, I was getting really interested in, in link ups and big traverses. And yeah. at that time, nobody else was really into it. Okay. I, just, I couldn't understand why, because I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Because, I mean, if, if more is better, <laughs> link-ups and traverses are like the ultimate expression of that. Uh-huh. And so this is sort of a long-winded story, but you can edit the whole thing out if oh, you no, want. Oh, no, I'd love but, to but at any rate, I was trying to figure out, okay, if I'm going to go big in the mountains, I don't want to have to carry a bunch of food and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I started reading up in triathlon magazines and running magazines what endurance athletes do. You know, mm-hmm. people are running hundred mile races or whatever, um, or super long triathlons. If they could just teach their bodies to burn their fat better, so mm. you wouldn't have to carry a bunch of food. Because mm-hmm. I mean, if you're in basically in a, a running race, well, they can you can pick up donuts along the way. But in the mountains, obviously, you, you can't really have all that stuff. So I was trying to figure it out, and it seemed like half of the information was saying yes, you can teach your body to burn fat effectively as an energy source. Mm-hmm. And the other half was saying, no, you can't. It's just set at birth and, you know, you just got what you got. Hmm. And so I couldn't find the information that I, you know, or the definitive information that I wanted. And so I went down to Leavenworth and for about a week, I just monitored my diet and I made sure that I think that I never, the most I ever had one day was 500 calories. Hmm. And every day I made sure that I sold between 25 and at least 25 or 30 pitches of, you know, 510, 511. Yeah. And after the first day or so, I'd, my energy would be pretty low in the morning. Mm-hmm. But then if I just pushed through that, then I found that it would just, the energy level would come back up again and I could just continue as long as I wanted. Yeah. So at the end of that week, I kind of figured, and I, and I figured, you know, day by day, maybe I was going to get worse and worse, but I didn't. Hmm. And so as far as I was concerned, I had my answer. Yeah. So that then maybe two weeks later, I came back and what I wanted to do was to do a traverse of the Stewart range. Okay. So starting on, there's like the, the direct north buttress of Mount Stewart, which is a classic in Cascades climbing. Mm-hmm. Do that. 
and then just start traversing to the left. I, I assume it's southeast or something. Okay. Yeah. Over Dragon Tail and Kolchuk and a, b- a bunch of peaks, and then finally finishing up on Prusik. Yeah. And on that, I I had like a, one water bottle. And that was another thing is I'd been told all the water in that area was uh, had Jardia, mm. so you couldn't drink it. Okay. So I had one water bottle, and had like an old bruised banana. I put it inside and then filled it up to the brim with water. And that was all the water I had for the day. Wow. And so Before then I... Ultralight filters and stuff. Yeah, I just, I didn't have one and uh, I didn't have the money to buy one. So okay. just, <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. And then to get started, you know, one of the things about big climbs or big adventures, you kind of think, you know, you kind of think of all the things that are going to happen. You know where the crux is. And with real adventures, a lot of times it comes at a, point where you're just not ready for it or mm. you weren't expecting anything. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so at the beginning of the day, there's a long dirt road that gets up to the trailhead mm-hmm. from the valley floor. And I didn't have a car. My buddies had the car, but anyway, so I just walked up the road, okay. you know, at one in the morning or something. And so I start walking up this road and it's, I can't remember, maybe four miles or something. And after a couple hours of walking, I see these headlights coming up the hill and I'm like, instantly just wanted to jump off the road and, mm-hmm. and hide, you know, I'd like kind of thing you do when you're a kid okay but i was an adult at that point anyway so <laughs> I, I fought the urge and finally i just i just launch just launch off the edge of the road and hide in some bushes uh-huh. car goes by and then uh, i crawl back up onto the road and like wow that was juvenile picking leaves and twigs out of my hair like what the hell was that all about <laughs> anyway so keep walking then finally i see the headlights coming back down the road again uh-huh and i'm just i still just want to jump off the road really bad and this time i just like okay i'm i'm gonna hang out i'll you know, it's just some, somebody lost. Yeah. So the car's coming towards me and it slows down and finally it pulls over on the side of the road. And I'm like, yeah, he's, I'm sure he's just lost. Uh-huh. And so I start walking over to his car and he goes to open up the door and the dome light cracks on. Uh-huh. And it's this big fat guy in a Hawaiian shirt. He's got all these magazines and maps and stuff in his passenger seat. And I see him just reach underneath all that stuff and pull out this huge handgun. Oh my God. And stuff out. And I remember like, this is how I die. This huh. is right now. I'm too far from the edge of the road. I can't run. I don't have time to run. Yeah. And he points this huge handgun at me and starts asking me all these questions. You know, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going mountain climbing. And he goes, well, where's your climbing partner? I'm like, I, I don't have any friends. I, I mean, I'm just here by myself <laughs> type thing. And I don't have a pack. All I've got is this little fanny sack. So I'm trying to go really light with my <laughs> with your one water bottle. And, and, yeah. and finally it turns out, there had been break-ins up at the trailhead and he was going up there hoping to catch somebody at it oh, and, and wow. I guess shoot him in the head if, if he did find him. Anyway, yeah. but uh, yeah, so that was basically the crux of the, the whole day and then <laughs> oh continued on and then until it got light, anytime I heard like a squirrel in a tree or whatever, I would just, my heart <laughs> would be in my throat. But anyway, so the, the, yeah, then went up and just had this fantastic day of climbing, got super thirsty by the end. <laughs> yeah. One water bottle for, I think I was out for maybe 17, 17 or 18 hours, something wow. like that. And just climbed all these peaks, but that was, it was such an instructive time for me. It was one of the mm. first big traverses I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really taught me like, I don't have to bring a bunch of food. Hmm. More water would have been nice for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, you know, as far as one of the big things that I've done, like that's, that for me, like I say, it was really instructive, but it also, it was just super fun. It was mm. this really cool thing. And compared to that, any, you know, speed ascent of El Cap or whatever that I might've done is kind of like way down on the list. It's just, oh, okay. it's just kind of so what? Yeah. It seemed like that, that Stuart link up kicked off kind of a new 
Yeah, I've, I've read chapter. about some other people doing cool things in there, and I just like yeah. it's it's cool to to read about some of the and for you too, you've adventures. done similar things in the Sierras around here. Yeah, yeah. Didn't didn't you link up all the Hulk roots in a day or a bunch uh, of them? no? I mean, there's like Too now many. there's like fourteen. I, I linked up with this buddy of mine, Matt Ciancio. Okay, um, we did four, four. Okay, yeah. in 2012. Um, sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so fascinating. You were uh, you were really way ahead of your time with fat as fuel. That's a really hot topic now in the ultra huh. endurance world. And yeah. there's been a lot of scientific research around that. And there people are really starting to challenge the assumptions that we've had about you know the limitations of using fat for fuel. And yeah, in both I um, and you know it, it's not as effective as a Snickers. Uh. But, um, <laughs> although Snickers, I guess, has some fat in it. But, but no, but using your own fat for fuel. I mean, like I say, I couldn't find the requisite information and yeah. so i just played around with it and i just go as far as i'm concerned i've got my own answer huh. from personal experience and having the confidence of you know what you found out for yourself because different people are different yeah i mean some people they just need to constantly eat sugar all day long and mm -hmm. some people don't but knowing even if you're not technically 100 percent correct but just for yourself mm -hmm. having that confidence that you feel like you know that, that this is going to work it helps a lot yeah I'm curious about your diet now. Is is that, is it just that you know that you kind of have that as a tool in your toolkit if you go on and do a long thing like that? Do you eat like a lower carb diet the rest of the time too now? Or what, yeah. how do you think about that? Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I think the, the super high carb diets are, are a mistake for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. If I eat really high carb diet, I get super lazy. Mm. It says the, the opposite effect of, of what you would want. In fact, mm. I, later that same summer, after that uh, Stewart Range traverse, I was back up in Squamish and I tried to do a traverse of the Tantalus Range. Okay. And I figured, okay, this time I know how I would do with, on very little food. Maybe, who knows, maybe I would do even better if I brought a whole bunch of snacks. Hmm. And I think I did like two peaks and I completely bonked. No kidding. And I was just eating cupcakes and huh. all kinds of stuff. And, and it was just, it was just too much sugar in my body. And I remember just getting super shaky hmm. and, uh, it wasn't super technical to get off this one peak, but I remember thinking I am way wobbly. I need to be really careful cause I fall off huh. and I just figured, okay, if in doubt, go with less. Gotcha. And it also means carrying less stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Win, win. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So I want to bounce back to the university wall. Uh huh. So you did the first free ascent in 82 with uh -huh. Hamish Fraser and Greg Fowker. Fowker, thank yep. you. And that's an, about a 900-foot wall, eight, eight pitches on the Chief, Yeah, about 12 minus. Something like that, yeah. I have a quote from you on that, and feel free to fact check this, because uh -huh. I actually saw this quote listed for the university wall. I also saw it listed for the, the shadow. So uh, I, but I, it makes more sense for the university wall. But you wrote, I think it was in an article write-up mm -hmm. that you did, and you wrote, I craved an odyssey that required my all and quite possibly more. I wanted to dive in and draw blood and it was okay if that blood was my own. Does yeah, that, 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 that would have, that would have been the you, the you, you all thing. Yeah. yeah. So is that I, kind of the deepest you'd gone into a, a project at that point? Yeah. So at that time, the most famous hard long free climb in the world was Astroman. Hmm. And so finally went down and did Astroman with a rope way back then. And what's the grade on Astro Man? Uh, 11C. Okay. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to feel awesome going up on U Wall. And I remember going up on U Wall and just like, holy crap, uh -huh. this is way harder, way huh. more out there, just way more 
in your face. When did you first start looking at that relative to when you um, did it? I, same well, if I did it in 82, I, I think it all went down, I think, in the same year. Okay. But so, like, in other words, we went up on it and just got totally slapped around. Hmm. Then went to Yosemite, climbed Astroman, came back and got slapped around again. And hmm. But, uh, yeah, but with that one, and also, I mean, the words I used, you know, writing I did back then was pretty extravagant. And, <laughs> you know, it basically sounded like I was a knight in the Middle Ages, you know, going to battle, you know, going to kill or be killed. I imagine um, you felt that but, way. But, yeah it, yeah, it felt like the most important battle of my life yeah. at that time. Yeah. Maybe not quite so do or die as some things. But, yeah, it, it felt like... The coolest when hamish and, and greg and i did that that was like made everything else we'd ever done look so lame huh <laughs> that's really cool so when i pulled that one up i also i was reminded that alex honnell went up and free soloed it in 2014 mm -hmm. yep. and he said and this is a quote from an article i found he said it's like the hard man version of astro man huh. and at that point you had soloed astro man and rostrum in a day mm -hmm. you know almost mm -hmm. 20 years before more than 20 years before that did you ever think about soloing the university wall? Uh, no, no, I didn't. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Okay. And by the way, hats off to Alex for that and, Zoe and other things. But yeah. um, one of the things about the U wall is that the first pitch, which is hard 511 or 12A or something like that, it seeps a lot of the time. Mm. And so getting it in good conditions, some years it can just be this black ooze that's out mm. there for more or less the whole season. Mm -hmm. So it was partly that. And then also when I started doing harder solos, it was right around that time I left Canada. Okay. So I'd go up there for shorter trips, but since I moved to the States, I never went up and hung out for like weeks at, mm -hmm. at a time. But uh, yeah, just that one hadn't really, I guess hadn't really occurred to me. Okay. I'm curious about that. Was it primarily weather that led to you making the move? Uh, I mean, actually, even before I started climbing, me and my folks, we would go down on camping trips to California every okay. year, uh -huh. usually twice a year. Yeah. And then as soon as I got into climbing, particularly at that time, like now, you know, some people say the best climbing in the world is southern France mm -hmm. or wherever. At that time, everybody in the world agreed Yosemite was the place mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. So it was really clear where Mecca was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't one of many places. It was Yosemite Valley. And if you weren't there, then you're kind of missing the point. Yeah. And that's really how it felt at that time. And so uh -huh. I was always drawn to that. And then coupled with that was the good weather, but also that's where so many of the best really long routes in the world were. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I was aiming for. Got you. Was there ever a point where you reevaluated and thought about relocating somewhere else? Or is this always felt uh, like home? Like I say, because I've been coming to California since before I started climbing, when I finally moved down here, it kind of felt like home. Yeah. But also where I live now here in Bishop, I mean, so in the winter, we've got like great sport climbing, great bouldering. And then as the, the seasons change um, and it starts to get warmer, I can just go to higher and higher altitudes. You can find perfect climbing conditions virtually any time of the year. Mm -hmm. and, when, and when people talk about different climbing areas and the virtues of one place versus another, a lot of times one of the things that they miss out, which is maybe the most important is, well, how many good weather days do you have? Hmm. If it's bad weather most of the time, well, it doesn't matter how good the, the climbing is to a certain extent. Right. You can only climb when the weather's good. And here you can pretty much always find conditions that are good and, and not just finding the good conditions, but also, you know, I have a ton of fun just doing, you know, one pitch cragging during the winter mm -hmm. and then the summer going up and doing, you know, bigger stuff up in the, the high mountains. And then the fall, getting over to Yosemite and doing long, the variety, 
not just that you can climb almost any day of the year, uh-huh. but also the incredible variety of stuff around here is makes it super appealing. And cool. I, I, the more I travel, I, it's still really fun to travel to other places. Uh-huh. But the more I travel, I'm kind of like, yeah, I think Bishop's it for you me. You picked the right spot. I think so, yeah. Nice. It doesn't get old. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Do you have days in the summer where you're actively going out looking for new walls up, up in the high elevation? Mm. Or are you hearing about whispers from other people? Uh, sometimes. Okay. Sometimes here, there. but um, And it's still super fun to go exploring new parts of the range. I mean, the Sierras, I mean, there's different definitions of what makes a textbook definition of a mountain range. But mm-hmm. by some books, they, they say that the Sierras is, is uh, the longest mountain range in North America. Mm. And like I say, there's different ways of measuring that, but it's it, no matter what, it's a huge mountain range and there's mm-hmm. just a ton in there to the point where the, the, the more I travel in these mountains, the more I go climbing, every time I go in, I'm just like, I realize how little I've done. So mm. it's kind of, it's almost like the more I do, the less I've done because I keep on seeing, yeah. you know, a whole nother valley with all these walls and yeah. And, and, and to sort of, uh, I don't know, simply just talk about the walls it kind of undersells the mountain range because there is okay. just these incredibly beautiful alpine lakes and cool places mm. to go hiking and exploring and the walls themselves. But also I've done quite a bit of um, ridge traversing and that's the Sierras is, is particularly good as far as just these long technical ridges. I mean, some of them are easier, some of them are technical, but compared to some mountain ranges, there's just a lot of these long ridge lines that, you know, if a thousand foot climb doesn't seem long enough, well, you can find something that's 10 times that long yeah. just by following some of these ridges. So yeah, oh, that's, that's, cool. that's super cool as well. Were you the first one to find the Hulk? No. Okay. No, other people had found it. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you think there is another or a few more Hulks? Out uh, there? D- y- y- there is plenty of walls around that yeah. size, Yeah. but the Hulk is uh, kind of wonderfully peculiar. What do you mean by that? The rock is, just, it's like, it's made for free climbing. Hmm. So I, I've been on, plenty of big walls where you're kind of like, oh, it looks like it might go. And then you get to this section where it's just totally blank and there's nothing. Hmm. And the biggest holes that might be there are just these little pie crust flakes that just break off as soon hmm. as you try. So it's, it's just, you run into dead ends all over the place. Okay. And on the Hulk, I think I've done six or seven new routes up there. I'm not too sure. Anyway, but every time I think, oh, it's not going to go, a crack appears or <laughs> oh, a perfect so face cool. hold in just where I want it. It's, yeah. It's just this, you know, the rock quality is especially good compared to other granite cliffs. I mean, granite is generally good throughout the range, but there it's just, it's a step better. And uh, this buddy of mine that's climbed even more extensively because he's lived in California his, his whole life, more extensively in this range. You know, everyone's while he'll tell me about some new wall that he's found. Yeah. And I go, so this is as good as a Hulk? And he goes, well, no, it's, <laughs> of course it's not as good as a Hulk. The Hulk okay. is, it's, it's just you know, on a level by kind of by itself. Yeah. So in that segment I referenced earlier in the real rock, you guys were climbing, is it the Venturi effect? Uh-huh. Is that yeah. the name? Mm-hmm. And I think you were doing one of the, I don't even know if it was the crux pitch, but you were doing one of those amazing stemming corner pitches. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying that it wasn't the hardest stemming corner you'd done, but you thought it might be the best one that you'd mm-hmm. ever done in your yeah. life. Does it still hold up to that? I can't think of anything that that's better. That's amazing. Um, it looks incredible. I mean, obviously the shadow is, mm. you know, the shadow is probably better for no other reason that you can just see it from such a long distance away. And uh-huh. it's just so striking mm. um, with that corner on Venturi. It's not quite as dramatically prominent, mm. Okay, but, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard to beat. <laughs> That's cool. 
So I was just listening to that episode with Chris Caloose on the Normal Cast, and at the end of that, or towards the end, you told a, an incredibly gripping story about free soloing. I can't remember where you were. You'll have to remind me. But you had been dropped in, I think, via helicopter in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I, I know. I think I know. What yeah, you were out soloing mm-hmm. by yourself, and it just sounded epic. You were. It was raining. It was like some five nine big wall thing, and you just got out of the way of a big flake that ripped off the wall i'm not gonna yeah. make you repeat the story i'll just yeah. point people towards that episode because it, it was wonderful yeah i, I mean to just to sort of with an idea about the the big flake of rock yeah i was climbing past it and i was jamming my hands beside it uh-huh. and it loosened the flake and yeah, it started okay. to rotate out onto my chest uh-huh. and so i couldn't just climb past it or push it out of the way i had to kind of deal with it in a kind of a yeah, yeah. bizarre you said it wanted to rotate out like a giant saw yeah and just kind of take me out with it yeah so I was, um, I touched base with Alan Watts before this interview and uh-huh. I asked him, I know you guys had met years yeah. and years ago yeah. and I asked him if there's anything I should ask you about. And one thing that he thought of right away, he said, you know, I guess what I'm most curious about is why he survived while so many legendary solo climbers, while so few legendary solo climbers are still around. So can you speak to that at all? Yeah. I, I mean, so I think one thing that's helped me a lot was up in Canada when I was just doing those laps, just up and down, up mm. and down. I mean, like, like I say, 10 laps on, on a finger crack, mm-hmm. 10 laps on a corner crack, 10 laps on an overhanging face climb and just up and down, you know, all that, uh, you know, obviously the up climbing helps you too, but the down climbing where you know, I would get into positions where I needed to climb down. Like for instance, I was on this one climb in Yosemite, it's called new dimensions. It's this five eleven four pitch route. And I go up there and the weather's bad. It's, uh, there's a thunderstorm. It hasn't started raining yet. I figured, oh, I think I can get up this thing before it starts raining. And the crux is right at the end, the mm-hmm. final 10 feet of this 400 foot route. Mm-hmm. And so I get up there and it's a lot of it's overhanging and I'm climbing up and then the thunder's getting closer and then it starts to rain. Oh my gosh. And then I, I get to the last pitch and I can see this water street coming down towards the final finger locks and climbing faster and faster. And then finally I'm like a body length from the top of the route. Oh my gosh. And the water's just filling up all the finger locks and I start down climbing and it's raining harder and harder. And so the water's coming faster and faster. I'm climbing as fast as I can back down this route to get away from, from the water that's, you know, seeping down the crack system. Uh huh. And yeah, I was eventually able to, yeah, outrun it. Hmm. Um, but I put in a lot of time preparing for like what happens if a hold breaks, what happens if this happens, what happens. And I can think of all kinds of circumstances where on ground that wasn't really very difficult, a flake that maybe other people use, it's got chalk on it, and but I can't really see how it's attached. It doesn't seem like it's going to break. Mm. Almost for sure it's going to stay there. But if it doesn't, then you're going to go the distance. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've backed off from you know, most of the way up a bunch of multi-pitch routes hmm. just cause I didn't like the look of a certain hold or yeah. just, and, it, and I wouldn't worry about the grade. So I remember one time in Leavenworth, I backed off this one thing and I think the section I backed off of was five, six, it was just totally blank. And then there's this weird detached flake hmm. and I tried to climb around and I just couldn't. And I just figured there's no way I'm pulling on that. And so hmm. even though I was just about finished, I just backed off and it was very easy ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you know, not just being good at chickening out, but feeling totally fine about it. And I think also some people get really down on themselves when they fail on stuff. Mm -hmm. And you can afford to do that when you're climbing with a rope. When you're soloing, 
if you've backed off because you don't feel good, for me, the, the whole idea that that should feel anything other than I'm glad I, I was smart about that. Yeah. Like not getting down on, on yourself. Yeah. So in other words, sometimes I've, I've backed off of say a five, nine solo and then the next day or even that day solo to five eleven. Hmm. So looking at soloing really differently, mm-hmm. like in other words, just be super honest with yourself and be willing to chicken out for whatever reason, which mm. includes, you know, you've hiked for maybe an hour to get up to a cliff and maybe there's some people on the route or for whatever reason, you just, it doesn't seem fantastic to go up there then okay. just to back off Yeah, and just feel like, you know, that's, that's the right decision. Pushing ahead just because that was the plan. Like you can, again, you can afford to do that when you're climbing with a rope. Mm-hmm. But so I've backed off of all kinds of climbs, just like, you know, my wife could tell you. So huh. sometimes around here, I might've left at like one in the morning and I'm, I say, you know, I'll be back at dark. I'm going to be climbing all day long. And like 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm back at home. And she mm. goes, what happened? I go, oh, I just wasn't feeling it today. Mm. Just didn't, you know, for whatever, awesome. for whatever reason. And so, but no matter what, I've been lucky. Huh. And, you know, we all have. Sometimes it's a matter of just, you know, playing with the radio at an intersection and look up and you almost, you know, either hit a car or hit a person. Sure. You know, just the you know, little intersections of good luck at just the right moment. Hmm. So for sure, there's, there's been a fair bit of that. But, um, but yeah, I, I think preparing as much as you can. And again, when you're going for something big, not just being in good enough shape, but being in way better shape than you need to be. Yeah. I, th- I heard you, I think you were speaking to your preparation for Astro Man. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying that you were thinking about rehearsing it again. I think you'd already climbed it multiple times. And you were thinking I'd done about it a few times it. before, but I hadn't done it for maybe four years or something. And I think your takeaway was like, you know, if I feel like I have to rehearse this to solo it, I should, I'm not ready to solo it. And I shouldn't be there. Yeah. And and that's the kind of thing that can easily be misinterpreted by a lot of people. Just like what you're saying that so-and-so's ascent was totally invalid because they practiced it. No, for me, Uh for me, that's where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. I remember at the time thinking, man, I feel so good right now. I wish I had never done it before. (laughs) Cause that, then I would have thought that would have been, like the ultimate thing I could do, but the least I could do given my situation was to not go practice it. Hmm. Was to just make it as, as much of an adventure as I could. Hmm. It seems like that adventure component's always been really important to you in your climbing. Yeah. Well, the way I started climbing, I had no interest in it at all uh-huh. because, you know, I mean, the average person who reads anything about climbing or sees it on TV it's not really what it's, what right. it's really like. <laughs> but anyway, so and... I had no interest in this buddy of mine that I did a lot of backpacking with. He goes, oh, you got to check out this book. Uh-huh. And it was this autobiography by this climber called Chris Bonington. And it's called I Chose to Climb. And mm-hmm. I go, yeah, I'm not really interested in climbing. And he goes, no, you got to check it out. It's just all about adventure. It's so cool. So I read the book and I'm like, this is not at all what I thought. Huh. And then I tried it in the first day of just like, this is what I was waiting for. Oh, that's but, so cool. But so the adventure thing, right from the very get-go, that's the thing that convinced me that I should read the book. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because rock climbing was such a cool sport. It was because it was such an amazing adventure. Yeah. And that was a huge difference for me because as much as I, you know, was a pretty hyper kid, I didn't really like organized sports. Got you. Got you. You hadn't found the thing that clicked yet Mm-mm. to that point. No. Tried a lot of things, but... So Chris Bonington is a very famous British mountaineer. Yeah. W- was he a rock climber as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's how he started. Okay. That's how a lot of British famous mountaineers started. They started as rock climbing because in Britain, I mean, they have winter mountaineering up in North Wales and up in Scotland, mm-hmm. but it, you know, 
mostly uh, rock climbing. But yeah, you know, he eventually he was knighted by the queen for his right. efforts. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't read I Choose to Climb. That was primarily focused on his rock climbing. And no, no, no. It, 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 I mean, it started with the rock climbing. Oh, it had and eventually it, it went to climbing in the Himalayas and doing new routes all over the place. So did that side of it ever draw you? Did you ever... The Himalayas? Yeah, that's... I mean, I, I've been there. Uh-huh. Um, the big expedition thing, I found early on with big expeditions, it's there's not a lot of room for self-expression. You're mm. kind of... It, on a few trips, just sort of felt like, I wish I could just go do what I want to do right now. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words the slow and ponderous thing of setting up camps. Spending a lot of time of, in the tent. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a long, drawn-out process with big expeditions, at least, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of logistics and stuff. And the ability to just, like, be up in the mountains, acclimatize, and then wait for the perfect weather window, and then just, you know, go for the 24 or 36-hour effort just mm-hmm. seemed like so much more fun than sort of the long, drawn-out stuff. But Okay, gotcha. um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it does just boil down to the being able to be spontaneous and just climb a ton. And realistically, you know, where I live right now, I can climb a ton with mm-hmm. on the spur of the moment. Yeah. And being able to have that close by is pretty fun. Cool. Cool. So back to that uh, soloing story that you were telling with Chris, you were talking about how at the very top of that route, I think it was raining, and mm-hmm. w- w- it was, was. Were you? Was this a route, or were you just first? No, it was, it was a, first new a, route. a new and, route. And, yeah. and so, to back up a little bit, uh-huh. I was with this guy, who um, he, he was kind of like a guy who would scramble up peaks. He did a lot of exploratory treks okay. through the coast range up in uh, western BC. Mm-hmm. So he had seen these granite towers from a previous trip and invited mm. me to come along so that we could do some first ascents of those towers. And we did that. And then when, so we were dropped off in one place and then we were going to hike and climb on our way to get back out to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to, um, when we got back to the ocean, we were going to radio for a float plane or something. At any rate, after we climbed those towers, we're climbing along, and then I see this peak with this amazing looking buttress. It's maybe 1,500 feet long, and it's just super elegant, just this beautiful looking thing. Huh. I don't know if the, the peak had a name or anything. And uh, so we get there in the evening, and he goes, you're on your own. I can't climb something like that. So, so then I got up in the morning, and it's raining. Hmm. And I'm like, well, it's not raining that hard. And <laughs> So I, I hike up the glacier and get to the base of it, and then it starts raining harder. And then I'm like, well, wondering if I should go for it. So I decided to go for it, and then it starts raining. Basically, the more committed I got, the harder it rained. Okay. And But yeah, it was a new route. And I mean, dry, it was probably, I don't know, maybe mid-510 or something. But uh-huh. but yeah, with the wetness factor, it was... You were describing you get probably like a pitch from the top. You're right near the top of this thing, and mm-hmm. the cracks peter out. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, am I going to have to downclimb this yeah. whole thing in the rain? Yeah. And you, I think you tried a few different approaches. They weren't, they, yeah, they dead I, ended. Yep, they and kept the last doing. thing you tried, it looked like there was going to be these, these friction scoops, this yeah. kind of slab climbing on friction scoops that went yeah. at about maybe five, eight or something, yeah. but they're too wet for your yeah. climbing shoes to stick to. So you, yeah. you climbed them. You were, you said you were wearing like these polypropylene long johns yeah. and you climbed up on your knees. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, I remember, you know, one of the things as far as like the down climbing thing, I would have had down climb like about 1,200 feet of uh-huh. rock down through that area where that big flake came out and almost took me out. Yeah. But I remember just, I had done so much down climbing. It, it wasn't like this panicky thing. I have to make this mm. work. Otherwise, mm-hmm. just felt like oh, I just have to problem solve this, have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so I get to this slab and it's, I can't remember, it was maybe like 40 feet long or 
30, I can't remember, but it had these weird scoops and I, I'm on this little ledge and I get my foot up into one of these scoops and I try to apply weight and immediately just skids off. It's just too slippery. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I, I try it a few times. It just won't work. And so then I figure this thing with, you know, maybe my knee will work. And, you know, back to the whole Chris Bonington book thing in that book, I think they talk it sometimes where, you know, the weather's bad in Britain. Sometimes they would put wool socks over top of their shoes okay. to climb in wet rock. And sometimes that would work. Huh. And I remember thinking about that, like, oh, maybe this will work with this, you know? Yeah. And so what I did was, you know, the muscle beside your knee, the, quad, the head of the quadricep, uh-huh. that kind of bulgy muscle there. Yeah. I put that into one of the scoops and started to you know, see if I could get some weight on top of it. And it did stick. So okay. it wasn't the kneecap because that would, it's too hard. It won't mold to the, the friction scoop so well. So got, it. got that part of the muscle in there, started to lift my body weight up. And I'm like, holy crap, it actually sticks. <laughs> and I stepped back down. I remember my heart was just thumping because it was just, I'd never tried anything like this. Uh-huh. And then I tried, I think I tried one move and then one more move and it started to stick. And I'm like, I stepped back down really quickly because it was this really small edge. And so if I, if it didn't work a few moves up, I, I don't think I could have latched the ledge on the way by. Yeah. So it was kind of like, make sure this works. And I tried to tuck <laughs> the cuffs of my long johns into my climbing shoes and huh. kind of got ready and then just did, it took a lot of moves. Luckily there was a whole bunch of these weird little scoops. Huh. But you know, when, when you're, if you high step with your foot, you can make actually a pretty big move, but with your knee, because just because right. the angles, it's a lot of little moves. Uh-huh. So it's uh, definitely would have been fun to watch on video. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like, yeah, my, my, my toes are just like completely off the rock and my knees are just like, going, that is just, I'm just working them, like really kind of like trying to grind the muscle, like into those weird little scoops. And, uh-huh. and then eventually got to the top of it. I'm like, oh. Was yeah, that full just, commitment? Is there any way you could have downclimbed with I'd, the knees? Uh, m- maybe, but the thing is, if it didn't work, I mean, like if I slipped, yeah. there was no, I mean, there's, nothing, yeah. there's no way you could stop anywhere. Yeah. It was a, like, a, say, a small ledge that I had started oh. off of. And, but yeah, it was just, you know, sometimes just, you know, weird, you know, it, I mean, if, if somebody ever went back to that route and did it in good conditions, mm-hmm. certainly not the crux pitch. The crux pitch is way down there on some of the steep cracks, but. Right. But yeah, yeah, sometimes just, you know, some of the weird stuff that happens along the way ends up being the stuff that you remember years later. Have you ever utilized that technique since? Nope. No, no. Just the one. Just worked a charm that one time. (laughs) So Alan Watts was asking me if I'd ever worn tights. He was kind of describing that, (laughs) you know, back in the mid 80s. Even now, if he puts on his old tights, he just has this sense of freedom and this flexibility huh. and this youthfulness that he, huh. you know, that he, it just takes him to this other place. Um, so you're climbing this route in Long John's. Yeah. Did you ever try the tights thing? Only once, sort of. I okay. Mean, with the, the Long John's, I mean, they're just kind of like these, I think they're Helly Hansen, like some kind of Norwegian, ugly looking Long John's. Uh-huh. There's nothing sleek about it. The only time I really <laughs> tried tights like Alan's talking about actually had to do with the shadow. Okay. So I'd done the shadow and this local guy, a photographer up there, Kevin McLean, he wanted to take pictures of me up there. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go back up there again. And so we meet at this coffee shop in the morning and he goes, okay, well, I, I got some tights I want you to wear. And I'm like, I, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, you're, you're going to love these. These actually look like really cool tights. I'm like, I really, I, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And he goes, no, you got to check these out. So he pulled out these gold spandex tights. Oh my gosh. Seriously, shiny gold tights. Yeah. And he goes, just try them on. I go into the bathroom, I tried them on and it was 
I told him, I said, this is like putting on my mother's underwear. I cannot do this. <laughs> and he's still trying to argue with me. I go, look, if this is what it takes, I, I'm not going to go up there. I can't do this. And he goes, okay. And I'm so glad that I stuck to that because he was really trying to be pretty persuasive yeah. because it ended up being on the cover of Climbing Magazine. Uh-huh. And luckily I was wearing my usual baggy white <laughs> cotton pants. But because if, oh, if, if I had succumbed and worn the shiny gold lycra, I just, I couldn't have showed my face in public. Oh, I mean, that. you wouldn't have been alone. I mean, it was all the rage back then. Uh, yeah, it's just... You, ne- you never got sucked into it. No, I just couldn't go there. Did you... Okay, climbing in long johns, though, it, I imagine know, I get, that The has... thing is, is, one of the things I, I guess I'd like to say about the whole lycra thing... Yeah. That was when, if any time in history, that's really when climbing, for some, it became like this... Um, egocentric or I don't know if egocentric is the right way but basically it's all about me Mm. in other words where the colorful lycra in some areas including Squamish and Index and a number of places all of a sudden they were like cutting trees down at the base of a whole cliff because so that they got good pictures Mm. it was all it it wasn't this like oh this beautiful environment like it's so you know to drink it all in it was like no we got to make sure we can get good pictures of ourselves Mm. We bring ghetto blasters to the cliff and play loud music. (laughs) Just kind of, it's all about getting pictures taken of myself or trying to get people to notice you. And I'm not saying that about Alan, because anytime I ran into him, he was such a cool guy. Mm -hmm. But but it was part of the people who were sort of the the, the loudest and brashest Mm. and uh, and the people who oftentimes were the ones who are, it's not so much about the rat bolting so much, but the chipping holes on cliffs, cutting down trees and being sort of uh, almost anti-environment is the way that the worst of it seemed like. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like those people almost always had the bright lycra. And so, (laughs) um, and and, and I guess maybe even more importantly than that, my heroes were not ones who were doing that. Like John Backer, that he was not in that boat uh-huh. and uh so the, the climbers that i admired the most not just for who they were but also for amazing climbs they did um, which ended up being the long climbs yeah the lycra clad climbers weren't so much doing that stuff mm-hmm. they're more like on the shorter stuff and so for a number of reasons the lycra it what it stood for and also how creepy it felt when i put it on <laughs> Just not where I was going to go. I imagine there was a negative association with what you spoke to earlier, the the competitiveness that you felt growing yeah. in Squamish and all that sort yeah. of stuff as part of that, yeah. part of that scene Yeah, for you. Um, it you. seemed, and and again, you know, it's, it's basically generalizing about a whole bunch of people, mm-hmm. but cause there's some, I've met all kinds of really cool people who, yeah, they wore Lycra, but mm-hmm. it, it, it did seem like the the lycra clad thing was they were the more competitive. They were sort of more in your face and that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. um, not nearly so chill as most people that I hung out with. Hmm. I'm curious about the long johns. Is that, do you enjoy climbing in that sort of no. simple outfit? Like, does no. that give you the I same mean, freedom? I, um, Is that just a you know, I mean, thing? part of it, it's the whole, you know, climbing up in Squamish and the rain thing. Uh-huh. So like, for instance, on that climb in the mountains, if you wore cotton pants, I mean, it, it just, that'd be a mess mm-hmm. you'd just be so soggy those the polypropylene long johns they seem to work better in the rain than pretty much anything else okay um so it's not like i thought that was the coolest thing to <laughs> wear <laughs> or just your, wearing yosemite um, no freedom of movement as you're soloing yeah it, it really had more to do with being in a wet climate where you, mm. it worked better than anything else when it was raining gotcha 
Uh, how old are you now? 62. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you'd known or any advice you would have for yourself when you were 20? Well, I've got some advice when I was two or three years old, start climbing like right now. <laughs> I wish I did. When did you end up starting? I think I was probably like 16 or 17, but I wish I'd started way earlier. Apart from that, uh, being smarter about mm -hmm. climbing. Cause, so like for the first bunch of years, if I was going to do a, a hard pitch, uh -huh. it would be the first one of the day. Okay. I wouldn't warm up at all. Oh, wow. I figured it was just a waste of strengths. Huh. I should just save my strength and just do the hardest thing first off. So that was stupid. Yeah. Uh, not never taking rest days. That was stupid. Um, and they're not warming up is just like, that's a huge one. I mean, you look at any athlete in the world and that's, it's a super important thing. And then also, I mean, in one way, I guess I would give the advice, pick your goals more carefully. Okay. Cause it's more kind of like, you know, I'm walking over to do one climb. I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. That one over there looks better. Oh, I'll go over there instead. Like just shiny objects all over the place. <laughs> just, um, but at the same time, you know, if I did give that advice to my younger self, I would also say, but don't worry about it too much. Hmm. You know, be spontaneous. Hmm. You know, maybe you are planning to go for this one big goal, but you see something that really strikes you in the right place. Hmm. And to a greater extent, the inspiration factor, I, again, I go back to that again and again. And that's, that's the thing where, you know, in a car crash, some guy just rips the door off of his off of his car to save his, his girlfriend or, you know, that type of thing. It's in a way it's, it's a little bit like that when you're inspired, you can do things that you couldn't normally do. Mm. And I think that's when we can see the very best that we can become. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. Cause I've just, I've had seasons where I'm just, I am just feel I'm Mr. Mediocre. Mm. And then I see one thing that just blows me away and just the heart starts pounding and huh. it's, it's happened so many times where I just basically flailing on certain level routes. And then I see something looks really cool and it's way harder. And I don't even get tired. Just oh, that's because, so interesting. Um, you know, for some people, simply a grade wanting to do well, wanting to say compete or mm -hmm. whatever, they feel like that's what brings the best out in them. But I, I think true inspiration, that's certainly for some of us, that's when you just can go to a whole level that you didn't even know was there. Are you seeking that inspiration when you're in a season that feels like one of those more mediocre seasons? Uh, or is it just, it, are you just waiting for you it know, to come on its own? It really is like a piece of magic. Huh. You just don't see it coming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in uh, Eastern Canada one time, went out there to give a talk and the, the local guy, he's a local hard man, and he was showing me all these different crags. Finally, we went up to this one crag and he had this project there. It was this thing called a monument and it's like a 10 meter roof crack. So it's, I don't know, 30, 35 feet long, mm -hmm. something like that. Anyway, so we go to the cliff and he goes, yeah, you know, the pity is, is this time of year, it's, it's April. So it's going to be soaking wet. So mm. you won't be able to get on it. So I get on some 511 thing and I get rudely pumped. I can't even remember if I was able to finish it. So I'm just sitting on the ground afterwards and, and he says, oh, I'm just going to go for a hike. And he's gone for quite a long time. And so finally I go to look for him and he comes running back. He goes, I can't believe it. It's bone dry. <laughs> so, I remember, so he leads me over there. And I remember looking up at this thing. I'd never seen a roof that big, this amazing roof crack. Just, huh. And uh, I'm just looking at it. And uh, I remember I had my arms crossed it across my chest. I'm looking up at this thing and my heart's pounding. I look down and my arms are visibly just kind of like practically, they're pretty much bouncing off my chest. My heart's pounding so hard. <laughs> And he goes, Peter, you know, I've been working on this for years. If you can onsite it, that's great. I'm, I'd be super psyched. But if you have to work on it, then after your first fall, then I'd appreciate it if you leave it for me. Hmm. 
I go, yeah, that's, are you sure? That's super generous. Anyway, so after that much easier route that slapped me around, hmm. I, I didn't even get tired. Oh just like, gosh. just swung out on these, you know, some weird sequences going out this big route. And it just all seemed about flow and just the overall feeling was kind of just being kind of relaxed. Hmm. It was the biggest roof I'd ever even seen or heard of. But that was the whole inspiration thing. Hmm. Just, I wasn't that good of a climber. Except for that one short period of time when I just got blown away by something. I've heard you say that in those moments when you have that inspiration, your 100% becomes 150%. Yeah. Yeah. You become a, a different person hmm. or at least for some people that happens. Cause I've talked to some people, they go, I've never encountered anything huh. like that. Their, uh -huh. their top level is always this certain, More they got this certain ceiling that they just, they bump up against and they can't go past. Mm -hmm. And then for me, I, I mean, I, I I get that, but then if inspiration strikes, the ceiling just lifts hmm. or something. I, I don't really get it. Do you ever have... So I don't really look for it. Okay. I, would, I wish I had a, I don't a know, formula. a formula that yeah. I could just kind of go, oh, all I have to do is, you know, eat my Wheaties or whatever sure, and, yeah. and uh, do some jumping jacks or I don't know what, but you know, it's just this piece of magic that, and it's really, it is something that just speaks to you. Mm. It's so to some other person, like, oh, that looks like hideous climber, whatever, mm -hmm. but, and, and, you know, sometimes it's something like that where it's a one pitch overhang. Um, and then other times it might be a whole ridgeline traverse that goes on for miles. But with the difficult climbs, that's when it seems in ways so much more impressive because on big traverses, there's no single move that's really that difficult. It's just mm -hmm. the, you know, mind bending amount of climbing that you're trying to get, pack into a day. But with a yeah. single pitch where you go, I'm not that guy. I'm just, I'm not that strong. <laughs> uh -huh. And then something that kind of speaks to you just turns you into that guy. That's amazing. I'm curious. Do you ever have periods where you worry that you won't find that again? Like in some of those lulls, are you ever like, oh, when is that inspiration going to come? I, I, no, I, I, I don't. Okay. I mean, the things that, yeah, I'd love to have it more often, Uh huh. but if it happened all the time, I guess it wouldn't be so special. Huh. It'd be like having a whole bunch of really good candy, but it, it would <laughs> become more normal. Uh -huh. And the fact that it's much more rare, but it's, I mean, it's not like it's only happened like once. I mean, it's happened, you know, I guess quite a number of times, but it's, you know, easily, suddenly, you know, a year can go by and I, I don't see anything like that. I have good days and bad days, but yeah, every once in a while, just having those things where, like I say, it has to be a, a place where there is some amazing feature. Mm. So in other words, if it's just a bunch of sort of homogenous looking sport climbing where everything looks roughly the same, it's harder to get really inspired. But when mm. it's um, something like the shadow or something like that, where you just, again, you feel like this is the best place in the world to be right here, mm. right now. Is it always mainly aesthetics that leads to that inspiration? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's something that just speaks to the person, but, it, yeah. but you know, an amazing looking feature, mm -hmm. not just a difficult climb on a steep wall, but mm -hmm. something that just, again, it's, it's an individual thing. Do you have anything like that in your mind right now? Uh, I mean, there, you know, I, I have these projects mm -hmm. um, that I'm working on. I think because I know this area pretty well, the, the coolest things that I've gone for around here, some of those have, have entailed pitches like that. Okay. But, you know, I mean, that's one of the fun things about traveling mm. is, uh, you know, you see things you haven't seen before mm -hmm. and maybe you'll see some feature that's like that. Um, and also another nice thing about traveling is, you know, you have a time limit, mm -hmm. so you can't keep saving it for <laughs> okay, that, yeah. that perfect day that may not come this year. It's just uh -huh. kind of like, nope, today's the day. Just make, make it happen. Yeah, cool. 
Is there anything that you would hope that your 80 year old self would tell you now? Um, well, I guess I would hope he would say it's still super fun. That's awesome. Um, it's still (laughs) so much fun getting out there a bunch of years back. I had like a real health scare Hmm. and I went to the doctor, had all these tests done and they go, man, something's really wrong with you, but we can't figure it out. They did all kinds of tests for cancer and stuff. And, uh, at the, at the worst of it, I was watching TV and I saw this uh, thing about um, Jackie Onassis and the type of cancer she died from. Hmm. And they listed all these symptoms. I'm like, holy crap, I've got most of those. I think, and I, I didn't even tell my wife. I was, I was <laughs> really scared. I thought, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to last the year. Huh. And it turned out my blood sugar was wacky and I was just, I, I need to adjust my diet. As soon as I adjusted, huh. didn't eat so much junk food and white bread, my blood sugar returned and I was just fine. Wow. But for a while there, I thought this could be the last year. And I'm like, "Ah, I really wanted to find out what it was like to be like an 80 year old guy, just cruising along some mountain trail, just by some lake and Mm -hmm. taking in the view and maybe doing a little bit easy scrambling or maybe not Hmm. just finding out what that was like. So, um, yeah. So I guess I'd, I'd like to hear, yeah, it's still so much fun to be out there because uh, climbing, for some, it's purely, a, cl- climbing is only about doing the hardest routes. And for some people, once they feel like they're no longer competitive, they opt out and they mm-hmm. take up badminton or something. <laughs> yeah. um, I know a guy who actually did that and he was a really good climber. <laughs> uh, but he's, he says badminton is super fun. But um, I mean, for me, just like hanging out by some mountain lake is climbing. Hmm. Going hiking with my dog up into the mountains and some trails that's climbing mm. going sport climbing is climbing. you know it's it's the whole thing and you know right here from where we're sitting you know see the mountains right there mm-hmm. it's yeah you have a beautiful it, it's view. uh it isn't just the act of climbing up on rock it's mm-hmm. it's the life hmm. but it is for me awesome is there something that you you've been especially grateful for lately uh I think, you know, one thing is, you know, when you're like 20 years old, you love hanging out with your friends, but you, you take them for granted. Huh. Uh, Sometimes family and friends or whatever, but you, you can take them for granted. And now I still go soloing at times and I really enjoy that time, but I really enjoy hanging out with my friends, like hmm. quality time. You have a good community here? Really good. That's and, awesome. And, it, and it's grown hugely. Like when huh. we first moved here, I don't think there was any really active climbers here. Hmm. There's people who had dabbled, you know, used to climb or whatever. And, but now there's just tons of, the energy level has increased so much. Hmm. There's been so many young climbers moved to the area and it's just, it's just changed the whole energy of the place. So that's really fun. Oh, that's I, great. I, I just love that part of it. Cause it's, uh, it was more kind of like a redneck retirement uh-huh. town when we first <laughs> moved here. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's fun to see the whole cowboy side of life, but I do love the energy that you know all the climbers have, have brought to the area it, it, as well when we first moved here talking to some of the young people here they kind of felt like ugh, they were stuck in bishop and they wish they could live in the city or whatever hmm. ran into a lot of people who kind of seemed like they felt they were stuck in this backwater town hmm. and now so much of what i hear is just like i can't believe it. i'm living the dream i get to live in bishop oh that's awesome and to have that around you it's really good. Oh, it's, cool. I mean, I, I know how great it is for me, but I, I, I love to have that energy where people are just so thankful that they get to be here and they're just itching to get out there and hiking and climbing up in the hills. Hmm. 
Bishop's gotten a lot more popular with traveling climbers and visitors. Yeah. Does that ever get challenging? Or is you know, that a I mean, th there's a downside to becoming uh -huh. more popular, but the upsides for me are way more. Oh, cool. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, you, know, you get some people, oh, you know, this is such such a cliff is really crowded. And I'm like, there's so many cliffs in this area. <laughs> if you don't want to be around other people, walk another five or 10 minutes and you mm -hmm. get away from them. So I'm not really buying that argument. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if you know, but it, it, when you're here in Bishop and driving in this this whole area, by far most of the open land you see is not for sale. Mm. And so in the 20 something years I've been here, it hasn't changed much in size. Mm. So that hasn't changed. The size of it hasn't really changed that much. There's better coffee. Mm -hmm. There's better restaurants <laughs> um, as well. There's a better mix of people. It, like I say, it was pretty rednecky. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and it's it's gotten a lot more balanced and uh, just overall friendlier, I think. Mm -hmm. What do you spend your time doing outside of climbing? I mean, <laughs> hiking with the dog uh -huh. and and climbing. I mean, Mostly that's, just that's, climbing. That's a, a huge part of it. You know, I mean, yeah. I do, you know, I, I guide. Okay. Um, but that's guide. climbing as well. And then I do some writing now yeah. and then. And that has, you know, you write about what you know and yeah. climbing is what I know probably better than other things. I'd forgotten that you've, uh, you've written a few books. Well, uh, guidebooks. I mean, uh -huh. well, I co-wrote a book with John Long called the Trad Climber's Bible. Mm -hmm. And I'll that, and, and, and what that is, is it's basically in, instructional about how to do things, but it's through all the ways in which him and I screwed up. Oh, that's fun. So, epics that we had and what we learned from them and what you can do to avoid that. And so mostly it's just a bunch of short stories uh -huh. about the whole thing and mostly about how we screwed up. Yeah. And then so, and then I've done some guidebook type things, but those have been select books where because it's select, there's more room to basically have like short stories in those about the climbs. And mm. so that's, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's not like I'm a real author or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, going back to days when we we're just hanging out on the campfire, we we're just telling stories. And, yeah. But it, writing was the one thing that I enjoyed in school. I didn't really enjoy mm. hardly anything else in school, but I did like writing. Well, what does that look like now? Are you working on anything? Uh, I'm supposed to be. Okay. Um, so th there's a, a buddy of mine who's a photographer, a uh -huh. mountain photographer, and and he wants me to write an essay for you know a picture book. Mm -hmm. So I should start on that pretty soon, but. Featuring you? No, 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 no. It's just the uh, he, he does landscape pictures up in the Sierras. Okay. So pictures of mountains and lakes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I haven't seen his choice of pictures. There might be some people hiking through there, but I've done very little climbing with him. But it isn't really about uh, the people. It's more, I think, the the mountain landscape that is what he's doing. Okay. But yeah. So you were speaking about Chris Bonington and and mm -hmm. I choose to climb and mm -hmm. and how much of an inspiration that book was for you. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll ever write your own book, something like that? <laughs> you know, uh, I'd read it. Will was just talking to me about that the other day, and I, I've had like some climbers who are I really admire who say, "Man, you got to do it." But you know, there always is the laziness factor and just wanting to go climbing and instead <laughs> of writing about it. Uh -huh. um, one thing that's difficult about it is, you know, if I'd never written about climbing before, I'd have all kinds of stories that I'd never written before. And mm -hmm. at this point, I've written about you know, not most of them, but I've, I've written a fair bit mm -hmm. for various magazines and journals and stuff and so it's redoing all that stuff mm -hmm. uh, or re redoing some of it but because you've done it before you're kind of like ah you know is it worth redoing it but you know there is the perspective that changes over time mm -hmm. you know your perspective you know i think the first time i ever wrote about anything was probably in the early 80s about that you all thing mm. and uh 
you know, obviously perspective is really different when you're 20 years old or 19 or whatever I was. Mm -hmm. And then now, um, I guess, you know, it's not something I think about a lot, uh -huh. but every once in a while somebody, you know, Will was kind of bugging me the other day about, you know, what do you think about doing that? And, um, it's fun to tell a story where there's a, a point to the story where okay. it's interesting. Uh -huh. If writing about yourself starts to turn into like a, a bragathon, <laughs> that's a, that's a problem. And, and, you know, why are you doing this? Uh -huh. And if it's done for the right reasons, then, I mean, for one thing, you can pour way more of yourself into it. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I'd have to sort of, yeah, think about it and figure yeah. out, okay, could I do it in a way that would be for the right reasons? Cause that's again, where I'd be able to put way more of myself into it. Mm. If it, if it was valid to me. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if this will mean anything cause we just met today, but, um, you have an a, abundant, incredible stories and you have a lot of really great insights and I would really be excited to read your book if you ever okay. decided to <laughs> put together a compilation. So All I'd, right. I'd really enjoy that. I think a lot of other people would too. I mentioned this earlier, but I reached out to Alan Watts, uh -huh. you know, to see if he had any questions for you or anything. And he just wrote me and sent me this quick story. He said that, I think you guys met at Smith in 81. And he yeah. recalls that he showed up to Smith with his buddy, Chris Grover. Yep. And they see a car and it's parked there and it's got a bunch of climbing gear and it's got yeah. these BC plates. And like, what the hell? And they just ran all over the park looking for this other <laughs> climber. And they ended up back on the monkey and they found you and I think your friend Hamish. Uh-huh. And uh, he said that you did the third ascent of rising expectations that day. It's like a 11 oh, plus right? on the monkey. But he still remembers. He's, he yeah. remembered you. And this is a direct quote from him. He, he called you a super mellow and humble guy. And he said, <laughs> that never changed. So just, despite <laughs> well, all the things that... he went on to do, he has a really great impression of you. Yeah. I, I remember those guys just being super friendly to us. Ah, cool. Um, but I also remember being down there one day. I thought it was maybe the first day I met those guys and it started to like the weather really came in it was like rain mixed with snow and, and Hamish and I we were hiding underneath this overhang boulder mm -hmm. and Chris Grover and Alan come walking along they come up to the boulder and we're like huddling underneath there trying to stay warm and they go to the under the lip of the boulder and start doing like one-arm pull-ups and stuff and we had <laughs> never seen anything like this it was just like this bizarre gymnastic show huh I mean, we were just like awestruck, like, man, these guys are so strong. But it was like, I mean, they clearly wanted to let us know that um, they were the locals. And it was, we were just awestruck. I mean, <laughs> That's amazing. But they, were, they were always just really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a fun time to show up there. I mean, at that time, although what they were doing was sport climbing, it wasn't called sport climbing. Right. It was just, and it was funny how years later in places like Yosemite, um, because that's, Smith was basically the birthplace of sport climbing. You know, they'd be not just dissing on sport climbing, but they would, because I was doing so much crap roots in Yosemite, they were kind of like, oh, isn't that sport climbing lame? Like up in Smith rocks, like, I'm like, no, I, I mean, we would go there and we thought it was just, it was one of the things that made it so fun to travel. Huh. Smith rocks was so different from Leavenworth. Huh. And that was really different from Tuolumne Meadows or Yosemite Valley. And it was just, um, it, you know, I, I, sort of done a whole bunch of sport climbing in Smith before it was really, that was really what it was called. And it was funny how so many people that I would run into years later would just totally diss on the place. And mm. for us, it was just like, it's just a different type of climbing. Mm. And it was, uh, and also, you know, seeing, I guess in particular, uh, Chris Grover and Alan and uh, 
lots of, but see, you have Brooke Sundell out there uh-huh. as well. And those guys were just, they were just so stinking strong. It was <laughs> hard to do anything other than just admire those guys. Oh, but yeah, cool. they were, they were really cool guys. It seems like you were able to really walk your own path during that time and avoid that whole controversy around trad climbing versus yeah. the tricksters and sport climbing yeah. and sort of stuff. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I guess I didn't really, um, I didn't really put labels on climbing. I mm-hmm. just figured it's all climbing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like everything's cool because, I, no, I didn't think it was cool if people say chipped holes on cliffs or cut down trees, you know, beautiful trees at the base of a cliff. But it was more just like, I didn't, I never really thought of myself as a soloist, for instance, when I did a ton of soloing mm. uh, or it's just, it's all just, that's what makes climbing so cool. It's mm. so incredibly varied. There's just so much variety inside of climbing that, um, it just makes it better. It makes it an even better activity that it's not all just Yosemite climbing or whatever. Mm-hmm. What's next for you now? What are you excited about coming up? Uh, well, try to do a few more pull-ups and get a little bit stronger and <laughs> try send this project of mine down the gorge. And then you're going to go try it tomorrow, tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. Okay. Nice. And then, uh, and then as summer comes around, go back up and work on that project up at the Hulk. But yeah, you know, th- there's that. And then there's also just a long days of just cruising, doing a ton of climbing, you know, either with my friends or without my friends. Yeah. Do you do a lot of bouldering around here too? I have done at times. I've always liked the longer climbs more, mm-hmm. although I've gotten into it at times. I, I just enjoy mm-hmm. doing longer climbs. And then also, I mean, one thing, you know, the, the bouldering has gotten incredibly popular around here. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it has gotten more and more crowded. So that gets more crowded than the route climbing does, but also it has really, uh, illuminated the risks of bouldering because friends of mine who work at the hospital and work in the emergency room, they say they've just seen a huge uptick in climbing accidents huh. and virtually all of them are bouldering, huh. not rope climbing. Yeah. So, a lot of ankles um, and I mean, no matter what it's, it's an impact sport mm-hmm. and even soloing, the idea of soloing is if you do it right, it's not an impact sport. Right. <laughs> okay. With bouldering, the idea is, no, you fall off all the time and you slam your body into the ground. Yeah, you always hit the ground. Over and over and over again. Yeah. And the idea that that's good for your climbing longevity, I, I guess that's pretty questionable. Yeah. So as much as I've had a lot of fun doing it, I, I like climbing roots more. Mm-hmm. What about the gym? Do you spend any time in the climbing gym? I should probably spend more time. Okay. I'd probably <laughs> be a lot stronger, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I went there the other day okay. and, and got some climbing in. Nice. I, it's fun. Again, it's just a, a different part of it. And, mm. you know, it's different as much as the climbing community here has is, is grown. You just sort of meet people here and there. But the little local bouldering gym is, is one place where you actually uh, is a little bit more of a social thing in there where you mm. actually get to meet people because it's, it's all enclosed. A little so. sense of community. Yeah, yeah. No, cool. it's, it's, uh, it's fun. I mean, it's, if that's all that climbing was when I started, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be a climber, but Mm -hmm. I enjoy, you know, checking out the gym now and then. Right on. Well, uh, the normal cast episode that I was referring to, the title of it is Peter Croft kid in a candy store. (laughs) And it's so cool to see that at age 62, after all these decades of climbing, you still really exude the same enthusiasm for climbing that it seems like you always have. So yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Pretty much it, that hasn't changed. That's amazing. I'm glad that you found climbing. And um, Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I have really no idea what I would be doing without it because it's just, I, 
until I found climbing, I just felt like I was just dabbling. Hmm. I was just dabbling in the world. I just, I couldn't, didn't know what I wanted to do for work. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. I didn't know sports I tried. Everything was just, I liked being outside, but mm -hmm. that's one thing that it is wonderful. And it doesn't necessarily have to be climbing, but when you meet people who have that thing, Mm -hmm. and it could just be riding horses or something, but something where they are just, they can't wait for work to end and to be able to get out and, and to go play mm -hmm. because most people don't have that thing. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you surround, surround yourself with like-minded people, you kind of go, oh, this is normal. No, it's not normal. Mm. It's a really good type of abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, it is fun to, to have that for yourself, but then also to be around people who, again, are that jacked up. What age did you say you started climbing? Again? Uh, maybe 16 or something like that. Okay. But yeah, wish I'd started way earlier for sure. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd say to younger climbers? Travel a lot. Yeah. Check out the variety thing. You know, huh. Just go to different places. And a big part of that is that you, know, you, you can go online and you can find out all you, you want to know about these different areas. And still, you travel to a different country and all kinds of weird things happen in the way that you were <laughs> never ready for. Uh -huh. And sometimes it's just something super scary, you know, like somebody pulling a gun on you at two o'clock in the morning on mm -hmm. some lonesome road. Yeah, with twigs um, in your but, hair. but more often than not, it's just spectacular places that you never knew existed or mm. people being kind to you for no good reason at all. Mm. I was over in Greece about a year ago and we were cutting across this field to get to the cliffs and we climbed over some gates and we're trespassing and and there's it's this tiny tiny little field that's enclosed by this stone wall and I see these little uh baby goats hmm. and so i go over and check out these baby goats and they're so cute and then i see this super old lady she looks like she's about 140 and she's coming towards me. she's got this little walking stick with the little neckerchief she looks like out of some old movie or something and she's just come charging over and I'm just like, oh, I'm not going to run away from her. I'm not going to make her chase me. I'm going to just take my beating or, you know, she's going to yell at me or whatever. And she comes up to us and she can't speak any English at all. And so she's speaking in, in Greek and she's pointing towards the, the baby goats. And then she puts her hand on her heart mm -hmm. with this big smile on her face. She was just so psyched that we had come and had stopped to look at her baby goats. And <laughs> oh, it was just like amazing. this sweet thing that it has nothing to do with climbing at yeah, all. Yeah. I'll never forget that. She was just this <laughs> super cool, ancient lady from just seemed like another time. Huh. And it was just things like that. So advice. Yeah. Go to these other places. Don't mm. just uh, get all sucked into the idea of just trying to reach the, the next grade or send your project all that stuff is fun and climbing at a higher level is good because the more, the higher level you can climb, the more options are open to you, but mm. don't make that all of it. Mm. Do you have your next trip lined up? Uh, let me see. Well, I was this last, uh, fall and winter. I was or at least a part of it. I was supposed to be down in Chile, okay. but they had a bunch of riots down there. Okay. So that trip got canceled cause I was going to go give a talk at a climbing festival and then go climbing for a number of weeks. Yeah. So that got canceled. But so this coming fall, I'm going to, go there. Nice. Um, awesome. Yeah. And then I think this, this coming year, apart from that, I don't know if I'll do other, I, oh, actually I, I got to go up to Canada and do some, well, I'll go climbing up there, but mostly climbing around California and then, you know, out in Colorado a bit, I guess, but mm -hmm. yeah, just here and there. Cool. <laughs> 
Well, Peter, when I uh, when I got together with Will Stanhope and he mentioned that he could connect us, I was totally thrilled. And then when he actually followed up with it and I got an email from you, I was <laughs> I was delighted. So this has been a, a real pleasure, and I really appreciate all the time. Well, it's been no, it's, fun. it's been fun, and I'm going to keep yeah, pestering a... you about that book. <laughs> all right, <laughs> I, I hope you yeah. I hope you take the plunge someday, selfishly. Yeah, I I, I mean, well, like, like I say, I I didn't like schoolwork at all. Uh-huh. I always really enjoyed writing. It was oh, like, cool. You know, and. One of those things, like with climbing, how I can just lose track of time. Mm. Same thing with writing, where mm. I think I've been writing for 45 minutes and it's been four hours or something. Just, <laughs> I lose track of time. Forget to you eat. get into it, where yeah. it's just you can't write fast enough. Cool. You get into that kind of flow. It's it's a very different type of flow, but it is a, a flow state that is maybe a bit like the flow state that you sometimes get in climbing. Do you write every day? Mm-mm. Nope. Okay. So they'll go for a long period of time and not do it. And then other times do it a whole bunch. One of the things that was cool was working with John Long is simply that he's maybe the most prolific climbing writer, best climbing writer probably around. And he just, he helped me with the whole, don't wait until you're super, until you're inspired. That might mm. be a couple of weeks. Just get up and just write for half an hour. If it ain't happening after half an hour, just walk away. Mm. But after half an hour, it, it pretty much always, it starts to, you know, the floodgates open up and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's happening. So that was good advice. Got you. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Peter. Yeah. Well, it's fun hanging out. Yeah. It's a blast. Yeah, good to get to know you a bit. Yeah. Likewise. All right. Yeah. All right. No, it's fun hanging out. Cheers, man. Like we do it, like we do it. We got the right, so we got